Welcome to God Books, the podcast where we talk to bookshop owners all around the world. On this episode, these are big philosophical questions, and we're going to have to answer them for our species. How much do we want the machines running things versus how much do we want people running them? Today's episode may seem a bit like a detour from our usual bookseller interview, but you can rest assured it's guided by the same love for independent bookshops. In November 2020, a new chapter began for UK indie booksellers with the opening of Bookshop.org. The platform prides itself with ethical and transparent book e-commerce that celebrates independent bookshops and with reading lists curated by writers, booksellers, and voracious readers. Shops can customize their virtual window, and their owners get 30% of the book sales they make here. Our guest today is Mark Thornton, the UK Partnership Manager for Bookshop.org. Mark is the co-founder of Mostly Books, an award-winning indie bookshop in Abington, which he sold in 2017. He then became a bookshop mentor, and soon after joined Bookshop.org. He has a background in computer engineering and tried his hand at several jobs that may seem world apart from his current mission, but actually make it all the more exciting for us to connect the dots. Hello, Mark, and welcome to our podcast. We are very happy to have you with us today.、Uh, we traditionally begin our podcast by asking our guests, who are normally booksellers, to give us a virtual tour of their bookshop in their own words. So. Why don't you tell us、um, where you are right now, and if you have any books in the room with you? Sure. Well, thanks ever so much for for inviting me on.、Um, and I'm actually talking to you from.、Um, we we have a very small house, but we've kind of expanded into lots of different areas. So I'm actually sitting underneath the roof because my、um, everybody else is sort of using technology and stuff throughout the house. So this is、uh, I've been sort of shoved away in the in the loft. We're actually in the, in the process of moving house, though. So many of our books. We do have a lot of books、um, are boxed up, so this room is actually my our bedroom. So I can see the usual teetering pile of to be read, my TBR pile next to my bed, and various collections of books which haven't yet been boxed、um, on various、uh, shelves and like that. So, so that's what I can see at the moment. And if I look up, I'm seeing a blue sky, which is which is lovely as well. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's nice, and it's, it's good that it's blue because.、Uh... Where I am, it's been raining all day, so not not quite the same.、Um, so, Mark, we invited you on our podcast to talk about Bookshop dot org. But before we dive into that, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a bit about your background.、Um, we found out that you actually studied computer science, not maybe not the traditional、um, background of someone working in book selling, among other things you did that seem kind of a world away from your current mission. So,、uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, I think. Funnily enough, computer science isn't a million miles away from where I've ended up. But yeah, I started.、Um, so I was always very sort of had a very sort of science and technology background. I studied computer science at university. I took a year off and worked in Berlin. So I really enjoyed your podcast episode with Curious Fox. I spent a year in Berlin, and I used to buy books from a what was then called the Polish market. I mean, this is going back a few years. I've no, no idea whether it's still there. So I buy books to read, and then I'd sell them back to one of the English language bookshops. <laughs> Oh, wow! So that was kind of like my my lending library while I was there. So、uh, it was really exciting to hear. I, I, I've got on my list to go back to Berlin at some point. So、um, when all this is over, so I'll definitely、uh, chop in and, and visit them. But yeah, so I did I did a PhD、uh, also computer related, but it was actually in the field of renewable energy. And while I was doing that PhD, 
the internet really exploded, the very first sort of dot-com boom. And I just was really into that. I started building websites, set up my own website company. And then eventually, after lots of different things, I ended up working for a company which it was an internet startup, but it used web technologies to monitor something called chain of custody in agriculture and also in forestry. So the, the idea was that you, you sort of take a snapshot of products as they go along the, the supply chain. So when someone bought something at the supermarket, they could see where it eventually came from. Um, so it's something that's known as fork to um, whatever it's called now, for farm to fork. So I used to have to travel to some of the world's largest pig farms in um, Oklahoma, in the US. And then, and then the next month, I would be traveling to the world's largest potato storage sheds up in uh, the Canadian Maritimes. And then, and then the next month, I would be out in tropical rainforests tracking tropical hardwood and timber. An amazing time. But um, my wife is a journalist, and she's also a writer. She's now a children's author, actually. She's, her name's Nikki Thornton. She publishes the Seth Sethi children's books. But because she was always a writer, she'd always wondered about a bookshop, opening a bookshop. So we'd always talked about opening a bookshop. So, so although my background wasn't in books, I was doing lots of different things, but I was always very focused on technology, um, you know, using the technology for other things. And so, yeah, when we eventually decided to open a bookshop, the technology played a big part, particularly at the beginning. Okay. So the bookshop that you opened was mostly books, right? Um, can you tell us more about that and how did technology play a role? Yeah, so so we open mostly books. So, so so the story is, I mean, everybody, all businesses have to have their origin story. Okay, it's you embellish it. I mean, we're all storytellers. I mean, human beings are story machines. That's how we navigate the world. So, the origin story of mostly books was I um, was having to go to increasingly risky parts of the world, and I had a very very uh, interesting and quite dangerous trip to uh, the Republic of Congo. Um, and then I was involved in a, in a, or nearly involved in a very bad accident in the middle of the rainforest in Borneo. And when I got home, we just started a family and I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. And, and, it, and if you spend time in forestry, people just say, oh, you'll get malaria at some point. It's just inevitable. And I was like, what? <laughs> so at that point, returning from one of these very um, challenging trips, um, we just said, look, let's let's go for it. It's time for change, um, and so that's that's what we did. So we had no background. In fact, it's, it's quite interesting because I obviously deal with a lot of bookshops, independent bookshops now. There's so many different routes that people get into book selling, and it is amazing how many people open bookshops with no experience. And I'm most really people, I would say, I mean, I, I know exactly. It's like it's the ones we've you, interviewed. It's maybe like half of the people said, "Yeah, we worked in a bookshop before," but the other half was like, "I had no idea what I was doing." <laughs> Just it's either one thing or another. You've 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 had your whole life in bookshops. You worked in bookshops. You've been in the book trade, or you've come into it completely differently. And it's I always wonder why people, you know, what is it about bookshops? What is it about bookshops? People say it's my dream to open a bookshop, and perhaps we can talk about that a little bit further. But we were exactly the same. So. We, we had no retail experience, but we'd always work for ourselves. I mean, we'd always been run, either running companies or working as self-employed. So the, actually running a business um, wasn't something that would particularly phased us. The kids nowadays would say that we were total noobs coming into the, uh, coming into the book industry. Um, you know, we really had very little. But what we decided to do at the start was, was to start blogging. So this was 2005. Um, so it was 2006 by the time we opened it, but we just started to blog and we just started to kind of, you know, riff on ideas of what we would do. 
and it was just incredible. Huge numbers of people from the, from the trade, publishers, authors, people living in the town were saying, this is amazing, you know, we really want you to succeed, you should do this, you should get this book in. So by the time we opened, we'd already sort of established a brand, if you like. I mean, the, the very name Mostly Books was a placeholder because we, we thought we'd come up with something better, but we didn't. So by the time we'd done the blog and the blog had a brand, we just thought, well, we'll just go with it. So, but I think it was something that has continued both in terms of what I've done subsequently is, you know, in many ways, there's a lot of paradoxes about the book trade. It's, it's possibly the most competitive industry on earth. And yet it's full of the most incredible people who will support you. And, and we got incredible support from the beginning. So that's how it came about. So what do you think uh, it is about people dreaming of becoming uh, booksellers, you know, own, owning a bookshop, actually? Um, I think it's just, I think if you, if you had a bookshop in your life when you were a child, it's a bit like Christmas, isn't it? You know, you know, Christmas really is an exercise in nostalgia. It's trying to capture a bit of magic from your childhood. And I think that's what bookshops do. They, they were probably, for a lot of people, they were the first time that you, particularly for people who love stories and reading, they were a time when, you know, lots of ideas and possibilities were opened up. So there's that aspect of things. I think people are attracted intellectually to bookshops. It's a chance the idea of curating and having that, you know, of having that sort of open to people is, is, is appealing. And I think there's also something inherently just magical about how would you, how would you run a bookshop? You know, how would you cope with it in a bookshop? It's just you, a physical space and people coming in off the streets, which in our modern world is less and less of the experience of working in general. So I think it's all a, a weird mashup and, pl and probably people like me who tell stories of opening a bookshop and people go oh my god that sounds great so it's it's there's a lot of stories around bookshops and i think people really warm to that as well so i yeah it's just but i, I don't have all the answers I've, I've always wondered why and i i still don't know to be honest <laughs> um so you sold mostly books in 2017 and then you became um a bookshop mentor with the Unwin Charitable Trust. We'll, we'll need you to explain what a bookshop mentor is and um, also tell us and our listeners, some of them dream of owning a, a bookshop as well. There's clearly a, a romantic idea about this. What is the top five things they should know before opening a bookshop? That's a really tough question. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I could come up with top a top 50, I think. Uh, okay. So bookshop mentoring was, so you have to go back to something called the Booksellers Association. So in the UK, we have the Booksellers Association, which is the trade organization really for bookshops. Unusually, it's for the UK and Ireland, and it is 150 years old or something like that. And they are incredible just in terms of how they support booksellers and that's all that's all booksellers from the very biggest chains right down to the smallest independents and everyone in between you know online only pop-up event driven specialist whatever and i think because so many people were coming in into the book world with no experience um and it's something we'll get onto in a moment but i i just think they felt that there needed to be some kind of almost like book selling 101 
Bookshop 101, Book Selling 101, sort of a, a, a series. And they, they do a lot of training and there's an introduction to book selling. But equally, one of the things about bookshops is no matter how you set up a bookshop, the only way you survive is you adapt. And at that point, probably three, four, five years into a project, you, you need new ideas. And so the idea was to go to, so the Unwin Charitable Trust is a, is a charity that was, um, that came out of the Unwin publishing company. Uh, they published Tolkien. Um, and so when the publisher was sold, the money that they had was put into a trust and that supports uh, booksellers and, and publishers. They're doing a, a lot of great and behind the scenes support of the book trade. So the BA went to the use, went to the Unwin and they came up with this idea of bookshop mentor and it, kind of launched around the time we were selling the shop so both myself and Nikki became um, bookshop mentors and there's two or three other um, bookshop mentors as well um, who are all re- very very experienced um, so Sheila O'Reilly in Ireland Patrick Neal who's a, a legendary bookseller with Jaffe Neal in, in Stone so really our job as mentors was just to look at the bookshop as was maybe try and align the dreams of the bookseller and where where might need help and then you know recommend different things to go to so often we were dealing with bookshops that were already in existence and and in fact the mentors still um work with bookshops who have who are everything from starting or just been around for a long time and need just help to maybe adapt so in terms of advice or the top five things that i can recommend to booksellers okay so i okay this is all linked to this idea of why are people so romanticized why do they dream about bookshops because when I was running a bookshop, you'd get people, particularly during the tourist season, we had a lot of people who were in to visit Oxford and they would come and visit Abingdon. It's a really old town. And they would say, oh, yeah, what a lovely bookshop. We're just passing. I've always wanted to run my bookshop. You know, what would you recommend? And I used to tell them this story. Okay. So just before we opened Mostly Books, I went to the Oxford Literary Festival, which was in the spring. We opened in the summer, I went to spring. And I met Tim Waterstone was giving a talk and, and signing a book. I think this book was called Swimming, Swimming Against the Stream or something. Anyway, went up to get my book signed afterwards and I told him that I was opening a bookshop and he was just, you know, fantastic, great, you know, really um, go for it. I wish you every success. And I said, if you had one hmm. piece of advice you could recommend, what would it be? And he said, don't do it. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> no, I was a bit, well, and, and so <laughs> when people came into the shop and said, I'm thinking about bookshop. I, I never said to people, don't do it. I would never do that. I couldn't. It's just too tough. But I would tell them that story. He'd already left Waterstones by that point. And he was talking very, I think what he was trying to say was, look, book selling is really tough. And I, I would never want to crush anybody's dreams. But I think, I think I would feel bad if I said to someone, oh, you should go for it. You know, go for it. Just open a bookshop, see what happens. Because the first thing I would say is, Book selling is, you, when you go into it, you need to be realistic. You need to have your eyes open, you know, for all the romanticism about it. Book selling is really tough and it's tough because it's physically tough. You're on your feet all day. Retail is just hard work. Books are heavy. You're on your feet. You know, so it's so physically. I mean, I, I, I don't wear a wedding ring because six weeks after we opened Mostly Books, I lost about a stone and I flipped my hand and the ring flew off and I, it was like, I found it, but I've never worn it. <laughs> you know, it's just physically, it's physically tough. Okay. It's mentally tough because you never know who's going to come in and what, who's going to ask. 
and, and customers expect you to know stuff. Okay, so as a bookseller, you have to, I don't know if you've ever heard of the knowledge, which is this sort of slightly mythic information that taxi drivers oh, have to yeah, know in London yeah. so they can get around the capital. And booksellers have something akin to knowledge, which is the knowledge of all the important books that have ever been published. So if a customer comes in and says, what's that Roald Dahl book with, with tortoises? Or which Jane Austen <laughs> book should I read first? You know, you have to have answers to that. You know, you have to have answers. You're expected. You, you look a bit silly if you don't know who writes the Jack Reacher books or, you know, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So it, and you're just going mentally up and down through the gears. And it's like, you know, what's the best book for a bright six-year-old? They're, they're always bright, by the way. They're always... <laughs> but there's also those questions like, um, my husband's died. Can you recommend me a book? And that's the final reason why it's so tough, because it's emotionally tough. Because you, you, people share with booksellers. I, I, I need to stop myself getting emotional here, because it just brings up so many memories from the shop. You know, we live in a society where loneliness is an epidemic. And there's very, very few places that you can go to where you can interact with someone in that very, very intimate kind of way. And people come into a bookshop when they have some big challenges in their lives. Perhaps they've lost their job. They're, they're, they may have, have been going through a divorce. They, they, may have, they may be suffering grief. And they ask you for your advice. And you get to know families. You get to know their kids. You watch their kids grow. Uh, and sometimes bad things happen to your customers. And that can be really emotionally wrenching. But good things happen to your customers as well. Um, I remember once we had a family and their son turned 16 and they just sent him to the bookshop to, for three books for his 16th birthday. And we'd watched this kid grow up and it was amazing. And it is amazing. It is, it's like no job like no other. But I'd, I'd love, if, if there's one thing to get over in this podcast, as much as it is amazing, it is also tough. And, I, and, and if anybody goes into book selling, you know, bear in mind that it is tough. So that's the, that's the first thing. The second thing is book selling is a profession. It's not a hobby. Right. So, and I think this is maybe again, wrapped up in, in the romanticism. If you, if you go into a bookshop, right, it might look like chaos. <laughs> you know, there could be piles of books everywhere. There's, you know, kids slumped against the, in the children's room reading and there's, you know, there's someone's brought their dog in and everybody's petting it and there's people having conversations and, you know, the bookshop was supposed to close half an hour ago, but someone's come in. It looks chaotic, but the best bookshops have rock hard systems underneath. Okay. And there's a cliche that management consultants sometimes say, which is that successful businesses are like a swan swimming. If you've ever heard this expression. So, the swan looks like it's serenely by underneath, you know, the the complete thing. And a bookseller, I can't remember who it was, said to me, a good bookshop is like a swan swimming upside down. So on the top, it looks just mad and chaotic. But underneath, you can bet that there are those very, very well-oiled things. And it's a profession and you can learn that profession. And even if you come into the business if you come into bookselling with no experience in bookselling, you can very, very quickly, with all of this help and everything, um, sort of, you know, get pick up profession and learn. Yeah, and that's everything from how do you do social media to how you do your returns, blah, blah, blah. Okay. The third thing I would say is, so I've talked about systems, but the biggest system you need is how you curate books. So last month in the UK alone, there was 15,000 books published, what? right? So you need to have a system 
And that's just in the UK. There's twice as many published last month in America. And depending on how you, and that's, that's just books. That's not audio or, you know, novellas or whatever. You know, it, it's, it's crazy. It's just crazy. A lot of books are published and you need to whittle that down to maybe 20, 30, 40 new books a month. And the bedrock of that is reading. So you have to read. Now, you don't have time to read. Okay, you, You're starting a new business. You're, you're exhausted. You must read. There's an expression that Zen Buddhists uh, say, which is you must meditate 20 minutes every day. And if you don't have time, you must meditate one hour every day. <laughs> and it's, and it's, the same, it's the same. It's If you don't think you've got the time, you have to create time because quite often you see bookshops when you ask bookshops what are your what's your usp and they'll say well you can have any book any book in here next day that's not a usp all right i have a mobile phone here i can do that right i can do that no question i can have a book at my door tomorrow no problem your usp is not 15 million books it's not the 15,000 books that were published last month it's i can give you a small pile of books and say choose from that all of those books, I give you, my, you know, I guarantee will be good and will change their life. So reading is the bedrock of curation, and curation is the bedrock of what your successful bookshop is going to be. And yeah. so, so that's so. So I, I mean, that's three things. I mean, I could go, no, I could go on. Yeah. I think you know, you, yeah. once you've got those systems, <laughs> once you've got those systems in place, you need to adapt them. Um, and the final one is never be afraid to ask for help. Booksellers tend to be very, very resilient. They're very hardy. They're very difficult asking for help. But by good <laughs> selling is tough and you need help. You need a team around you. You need your customers helping you. You need the booksellers, the publishers, the authors, everybody ask for help. Okay, that's, that's me done. <laughs> no, uh, that's really good advice. We actually noticed that booksellers are open to offering advice and, and talking through their strategies and how they cope with, for example, you know, the rise of Amazon and what do they do to, to be competitive in that world? They don't seem to be shy about, uh, about sharing their experience, which is nice. I wanted to ask you a question about um, what you just mentioned there about this idea of, you know, you could put a pile of, a small pile of books in front of someone from a well-curated bookshop and they would, they would find something relevant. And um, as, a bookshop customer, you know, being on, on the other side. Um, there's this, this thing that's hard to define that you find in some bookshops and you don't find in others. And I guess it is the fact that some are better curated than others, that you have much more the sense of discovery in some places, regardless of their size. It could be a very small bookshop and you could go, there'd be five shelves and you think, well, it's a whole world <laughs> in here that I could explore, um, which you don't have in others. And sometimes I really struggle to, to be able to tell what what is that? <laughs> what is this element of, of discovery that you see in some and not in others, including in some pretty good bookshops, you still don't have that feeling that you could spend hours there and get lost. And I don't really know what the question is, but um, how, how do you achieve that? How do you achieve this sort of magic in a bookshop? Is that it's, the book selling art or? <laughs> well, to some extent it is, but let me, that would just be that would be ducking out of, a, of, of your very good question. I think it is curation, but it's curation over the long term. So there's a, a chain of three bookshops called Rosters on the Welsh-English border. And it's the bookshop where, honestly, you walk into Rosters and it's exactly that feeling. It's like everywhere you turn of books, you just think, 
I need this book. How do they know I was coming? You know, how, how do they know? How, how would they know that I knew that author or how would I do? And I think it's the art of curation over the long term. It's those systems which go underneath because a good bookshop will have to have a balanced display in any kind of genre or any sort of theme or anything that they do. And that will be a mixture of new books and backlist. So, right, because, because you want to recognize some of them, but not all of them. And I think this is the problem with, at least with some chain bookstores, you walk in and you kind of recognize everything. If you've, I don't know, looked at the, the most recent list of what's been published or, you know, and you have that feeling that you know everything already. So what's the point, <laughs> even if you haven't read but it? But it's, it's a real, it's an incredible dance. And to be able to do it so that some, so that everybody or most people have that instinct, it is, is close to magic. But it's, you've got enough in there that you recognize. So you will, so for example, I'm a big fan of Neil Stevenson. He writes these incredibly epic, near future, technology on rampant, science fiction, techno thrillers. It's very difficult to pigeonhole them actually. But if I go into a shop and I see a shelf with a Neil Stevenson book and I'm like, I'm home. So anything else on that shelf, I will give more weight and more time to. The moment I start seeing a few books around which give me that feeling i'm going to have more confidence in in other books and and that just makes me feel it makes me feel comfortable but it's not just a bunch of classics you know if i see a, a, a shelf of science fiction classics then i might admire the science fiction classics but i'm not going to go anything i want new books but i need those reference points i need those little things i think that's the art of curation i think at the heart of anything important and bookshop book selling is really really important are paradoxes and there's always paradoxes you know whether it's too many cooks spoil the broth many hands make light work you know which is which is true which is not you know one of one of my heroes is the physicist niels bohr and he was obsessed with paradoxes and he said the opposite of a correct phrase is the wrong phrase but the a profound truth, the opposite of a profound truth is often another profound truth. And I think the, the way that booksellers resolve the paradox between the contemporary and the classic and the, the 15,000 books and the 20 that they've got is a long-term curation project. It's like growing something, a well-tended garden. So, and, and the best bookshops, that's that feeling you get. And that tells you that there are expert curators at work. Yeah. Another follow-up question regarding the curation, which I do agree, it's the most important thing for me as a as a reader who frequents bookshops as well. I wonder if there's there's a shortcut to uh, booksellers being able to read everything in order to have the best uh, to achieve the best curation. A lot of um, the booksellers on our podcast told us that uh, sometimes they inform their decisions to regarding what books they have in the shop by their customers their customers would come in and they will ask them five times for the same book and then they'll they'll realize okay this is something that we need to have because obviously uh, and sometimes they discover really good books through their customers is that a good shortcut to have I, I, most definitely and it comes back to that thing i said about asking for help you should definitely ask your customers for help not only because so i, I was really taken with your interview with john sando and i think it was um johnny who was saying that a bookshop has a particular character and part of that character and that's a character by the way that only emerges over time in the same way that we discover ourselves over time but a character is influenced by the shape of the shop the proximity of traffic and the people that come into your shop so the character is 
is very much shaped by the people who come into your shop. So you can definitely tap into that. And, you know, we were always, I, I remember there was a book, um, I, I, I'm, I didn't prepare this, so I'm, I'm relying on my memory, but it's, it's Kate Summerscale's Mr. Witcher, the book she wrote and won um, the British Book Award. And it was one of our customers who came, we just, we had it in as a recommendation for reps who are great sources of information as long as you, as, and you build up a layer of trust with your reps. Um, so that's one great way of shortcutting curation is, is to build up your in, you know, interaction with rep, reps. Publishers themselves are shortcuts, particularly the small publishers. Um, I'm a big fan of Galley Beggar Press. And I know that, that if I wanted a shortcut, if I went back into the bookshop and I had to quickly um, you know, build up a collection of books, Persephone Books is another one. These are all the pub- publishers should be shortcuts to that kind of quality. So you build up your list of publishers that you trust as well. But as your customers come in, so so this customer came, we, we put it out on the table and it was hardback and it was kind of, is it true crime? Is it history? Didn't really know, hadn't read it. Um, and, the, and the day after the customer bought it, just came back and said, this is one of the best books I've ever read. And we, both Nikki and I then read it. Both of us loved it, which was incredibly rare. We went all in. We sold loads of um, hardbacks. We then asked to have an event with the author months before we even knew she was shortlisted. And, and one, of, one of my absolute triumphs of, of book selling was we did the event. She beat Obama in the British Book Industry Award. She had about four hours sleep. And then she came to Abingdon and did an event. And we were just like there going. And everybody was like there going, oh, you're, how lucky is that? You know, or you've probably got friends in high places. And it, and it wasn't. We just... We just, that was one customer feeding back in. So I would say that is, customers are an incredible shortcut, but you have to, you've got to know, you've got to, you can't just, you've got to build those levels of trust. I mean, trust is such an important word nowadays and it's in such short supply, particularly online and nothing builds trust than face-to-face communication in the bookshop. So I, I think it's about trust and it's about converting that trust into a selection of books through curation. There's a PhD thesis in this for someone, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. It should be in the making anyway. Um, <laughs> so you are now uh, the UK Bookshop Partnership Manager at bookshop.org. And for our listeners, I'm sure most of them know, but bookshop.org has launched in the US a year ago and in the UK um, in November. And it's pitching itself as a socially conscious alternative to Amazon to buy books online. Could you tell us a bit about bookshop.org and and why did you join them? Sure. So at its simplest, bookshop.org is an online bookshop, um, but it's also an affiliate website. So it allows anyone, anyone to set up as an affiliate, create a storefront, um, start curating books into lists. um, And and lists are really important to bookshop.org. I'll come back to them in a minute. But lists of, of recommendations. And then... Anything they sell, they get commission on the sale. So that's the, the simplest answer. Then let's go up a level. Bookshop.org's mission is to support physical bookshops, independent bookshops, and the bookselling culture that, that surrounds them. So we actually differentiate between two types of affiliates on the, on the website. So I, I know... Um, I know the Got Books podcast. I, I believe I'm right in saying that you've set up as an affiliate on the on bookshop.org. Yes, we, we have. Great. So, so you've set up as an affiliate. 
Um, you can list books that you're inspired by or, you know, favorite books or books that are recommended by people on your podcast. And then sales of books that you make, you earn 10%. And I'm sure that money is a really important revenue stream to support the, the great work you're doing in, in, in enabling bookshops to tell their stories. But an additional 10% of those sales go into a, what we call the bookseller pool. And that's a shared pool of money. And that's divided up between all the physical bookshops that are on the platform once a month. But there's another type of affiliate, and that's the physical bookshop affiliate. So to be a bookshop affiliate, you need to have an actual bookshop that people can come and visit, a browsing bookshop, if you like. Any books that you sell through your own links, you earn 30% commission. Um, and I'm the, the bookshop partnership manager, which means I manage the, we, have, we now have 440 bookshops in the UK that are activated as, as full affiliates. So that's the difference. So bookshops can use bookshop.org as a, as a channel, if you like, to sell books. They earn the 30% commission. Meanwhile, everyone else can uh, sell books and get affiliate revenue, but also know that they are contributing to the support of bookshops as well. And I, I think it's an important point to make because hardly anyone in publishing makes any money. Hardly anyone in the, in the book trade makes money, okay? So for every, you know, for every J.K. Rowling, for every David Walliams, there are thousands of authors, small publishers, you know, book reviewers who depend upon affiliate revenue to keep going. And they have traditionally got that revenue by linking to Amazon. Amazon grew so big because everybody linked to them. And Amazon has millions, billions probably, of inbound links most of them set up back in the day. And so what bookshop.org now is, it provides an alternative for affiliates to earn commission, but they can now choose to do so through a website that contributes an equal amount to independent bookshops. Plus they can do so with a company that's a B Corp. So that's a company that's set up and audited against an ethical standard. So just an example, you know, we pay all our taxes in the UK. We carbon offset our deliveries we have it written into our company articles that we can never be sold to Amazon. So it, it's, it's what we hope is it's a win-win. And more importantly, it builds an ecosystem that recognizes that there are many, many parts of the book trade. And if everybody's able to make a living, we'll have more, we'll have more bookshops, we'll have more diversity, we'll have more voices in, in print, we'll have more authors who are able to, to write more and more diverse books. When everybody's just pointing at one site like Amazon, it's the complete opposite of diversity, in, in, in my opinion. Now, mm -hmm. I'm biased, okay? But that's, <laughs> the, that's the, the idea of bookshop.org. Right. No, that's, uh, that's definitely in line with what we hear from, from booksellers who um, I think almost unanimously uh, said mean things about Amazon. <laughs> On, on this podcast. So, uh, so far, so good. But I do have a few questions about how bookshop.org works, because you explain now the, the business model and the different levels of it quite well. I have to admit that in the beginning, I was a little bit confused. I wasn't quite sure if I make a purchase on the website directly, if I find a book and buy it, what percentage does which bookshop get? So that that part uh, was slightly confusing. Then I understood, okay, so the bookshops don't actually handle the logistics themselves, right? They don't have to wrap the book, take it to the post office or whatever process they might have. Is this, or 
maybe you can tell us what what is the main need or the main problem that bookshop.org is solving? Is it the fact that independent bookshops have a hard time going online and competing with Amazon? Or or what do you think is is the main problem? Well, I think there's that you know, there are several um you I mean, you're absolutely right in saying that how bookshop.org set up, it's it's how it works. There is a lot of nuance and there's a lot of subtlety in, in some of the ways that it works. So it's not surprising that on a first uh, look at the site, you're thinking, well, how, how on earth um, does this work? So if I can put it like this, so if you, if you visit bookshop.org, you will arrive at the website through a number of different ways. Okay. So you'll either arrive through a direct link from bookshop. So because it's an affiliate website, we have affiliate links. Okay. So these are, these are links with a, a little coded a little ID or a code in there. So the moment you arrive on the site, you trigger something called affiliate mode. And it's actually done with a cookie being being set on your device. So the moment you arrive, you've triggered affiliate mode. The, the affiliate, uh, so in, in the case of a bookshop, will, will get that sale. But people can also arrive on bookshop.org. Obviously, bookshop.org has had a lot of publicity. So people might just literally, and the website is the name. So they might just type in bookshop.org. And then they go to the map. And they can see which bookshops are local to them. And they, they click on that bookshop and that takes them to the bookshop storefront. That also triggers affiliate mode, sets the cookie. So that's kind of how the sales, if you like, are tracked. Now, and can I, can I ask you here, do the bookshops need to do anything first in order to, to be registered on your platform? I mean, that's optional for them, right? Otherwise, they are already there because they're part of the booksellers association is that no, it no so bookshops have to ask to be on the platform we never put anybody automatically on the platform and to answer your questions about why bookshop the walk we're going to bounce around a lot in the next few minutes i know so just just pull me back if i get wrapped up but there's it is quite nuanced and i'd like to it's worth just dwelling on some of these points there are some bookshops who do brilliantly online bookshop.org doesn't offer a superior e-commerce system to plenty of bookshops out there um, who run really good online systems. So so there are those bookshops who do really well online. So I wouldn't want to try and make out that somehow. But there are many, many bookshops that have no e-commerce. And setting up an e-commerce site from scratch can be you know, very daunting. You may not have the skills. Even if you do set up an e-commerce site from scratch and you're doing click and collect or whatever, there's a plenty of bookshops who kept going during lockdown who were taking orders online and the logistics, the delivery can be exhausting. So our handling logistics plus the 30% is quite an attractive package. So I've, I've talked to an, a lot of bookshops who are saying, okay, let's get to the real core, if you like, maybe some of the criticisms of the bookshop model. So I know that, that it's been said that, well, if someone comes into a bookshop and buys a book from, my, from me in a bookshop, they'll get 50, 55% of the margin. And then at bookshop.org, we're only giving 50%. Absolutely. And that's why our messaging is really clear. If you look on any of our, on our website, on our socials, on what we, we put out into the book trade, it's really clear. The best way to support bookshops is directly in the bookshop. No question. The next best way is to approach the bookshop and ask them how they would like to be supported online. And then thirdly, bookshop.org is another platform which helps support independent bookshops okay so we are unequivocal of that being the sort of the one two three 
but there's plenty of bookshops who who do use bookshop.org and it works really well for them as a as a fulfillment partner to do that kind of e-commerce and then they can focus on their shops right secondly it's tempting to look at bookshop.org and think okay um we've had covid so i can really understand why bookshops have really gone for bookshop.org because we locked down and quite often it's been the only way for bookshops to sell books bookshop.org was launched before the pandemic it came about because of very very long-term trends in society and those trends are you know there is increasing numbers of people who want to do stuff digitally they want to do stuff quickly and i think one of the things that amazon have done brilliantly i mean i i I admire Amazon in the way that I admire the sleekness of a, of a shark, but I just wouldn't want to be in the water with it. Okay. It's, it's, it's so optimized. It's so brilliant. And they've, they've inveigled their way into everyone's lives. You know, you don't have to have a speaker in your home to see that Amazon underpins a lot of our modern lives. So it's the ease of, of doing it. And so what bookshop.org was a way of trying to go up against Amazon to offer that kind of ease of ordering where customers are, but one that supports bookshops. So an individual bookshop, so that's a long way of answering your original question, which is how do bookshops get on the platform? So a bookshop comes to us and says, I would like to be on the platform. We check two things. One is that they have a physical bookshop and the other is that they're a member of the Booksellers Association. And we do that because we are building partnerships and we want to build this ecosystem and we want to include as many of the organizations that really support physical bookselling and the bookselling culture and the Booksellers Association are second to none with that. So it's just a natural partnership. And also the book, you know, is, a, is someone who has a shelf of books in a shop full of teddy bears, you know, a bookshop. <laughs> and so the bookshop association is very good at identifying what's a bookshop and what isn't a bookshop. And that it's just down to us then to, so then we take the bookshops through a setup process and it takes about, well, you've, you've set up a, a storefront. It can take about 20 minutes. There are other things that you have to do to, if you want to really curate lists in a, in a focused and uh, you know, want to create lots of lists, it can take longer. You can set up a Stripe account so you can get paid. But basically, you can set up a storefront in a very, very short space of time. And if you're a bookshop, you set up your storefront, you tell me, I activate you on the map and make sure that you're now getting 30% in terms of commissions. And that's really as simple as it goes. And there's no locking, there's, there's no cost to bookshops. And if a bookshop changes their mind, they can leave. Um, we haven't had any bookshops leave. Yeah. We, sadly, we've had one bookshop that's had to close, but we haven't, you know, the, 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 the feedback has been positive. And we constantly, I constantly, all the team constantly talk to bookshops to make sure that we're being respectful, that we are, the choices we make, the way that we're developing the site aligns very closely so that we're supporting bookshops and not harming them because it's our mm -hmm. mission. If it, the moment we start to harm bookshops, we won't be around. There's no question. Yeah. We have to do. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. You have to support them so that you have a business model as well. Um, very quick question to the way the online profiles are set up of the bookshops do the lists the book lists do they have to actually represent what the bookshops have in stock physically in stock in their shops or they can they might be different they, they can be very different so for example i know one bookseller who doesn't have a lot of space in their shop um, but has used bookshop.org to try and curate a list of graphic novels and is using that to feed back to 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 their own shop 
uh, curation. It's worth saying here, by the way, one of your earlier questions was, how did I get involved in bookshop.org? The thing that first just got me so excited about bookshop.org was the concept of the list. Because discovering books online sucks, right? No one really has cracked discoverability because it's all algorithmic. It's all algorithm generated. The moment you start buying through an online bookshop, it, it just gives you more of what it thinks you, that you want. And the thing about bookshops is you get serendipity. You get choice, but from a limited choice. And for me, lists and the fact that the whole site is built around lists, we, we curate lists, we share lists, lists shared between bookshops. Authors have chosen lists, which we then share with bookshops who put them on their own storefront. The concept of lists is the closest, I think, we get to cracking the discoverability problem. And that's what attracted me. That's, I just thought this is, this is amazing. And I could really see how it could be something that the booksellers could play with. And I know from, in fact, was one of the things that we recommend is, you know, if you are using bookshop.org to, to experiment with lists in a way that you couldn't do in your shop, this may give you the confidence to, to do something in your shop and, and, and equally vice versa. You know, you, you, you might want to build a list which absolutely mirrors what's in your shop. So your storefront and your shop experience are, are symbiotic, overlap with each other really well. There is no one way of using bookshop.org. Just as there's 440 different bookselling businesses, quite seriously, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that. They're all different. They all have their own characters to John Sando's point. There are 440 different ways of using bookshop.org and we are very young. We're only, the UK site is less than six months old. We launched in Spain last week. We are really young. We've still got lots to learn. We're still developing and we're going to work with bookshops to see how that relationship, how that symbiosis, if you like, can, uh, can, can evolve. I was just going to ask you about this, um, your plans of expansion, because I think, I'm not really sure about the US, but I feel like the UK booksellers have been supported and are being cherished in a way that maybe independent booksellers in other countries uh, for cultural reasons maybe or economic reasons I don't, I'm not sure they don't uh, benefit from the same support and I was wondering whether your plans of expansion in other countries let's say in Europe are kind of related to how many books are published in different countries I'd love to say that there was a grand plan behind all of this <laughs> <laughs> um, it turns out I mean, the UK was a natural partnership for the US. Yeah, of course. Um, there's, there's, there's long been a, a big transatlantic bond between the, in the Anglosphere as much as anything else. The UK has differences to the US. Spain also has differences to the, both the UK and the US. There is definitely a lot of localization, and that is to be applauded because our mission is to support a bookselling culture, and that culture will, be, will depend on different countries. Spain came about because... There was a specific group within Spain, a, a specific business within Spain that wanted to um, do something very similar. And it just it just was a natural partnership. It was la launched last week. And um, in interestingly, they are describing themselves as the Solidarity Amazon. And again, Amazon is perceived differently in different countries as well. So I, I think it's tempting. And boy, oh boy, I'm, I, I am often tempted to to use Amazon as the sort of, you know, to hold Amazon up as everything that we're not. But Amazon is different in different countries. It's evolved differently in different countries, but it's basically the same model. And different countries have different relationships with, they're at different stages. You know, the, the UK, I think, has been more than other European countries, I, I feel. Uh, this is only just a feeling. 
high street retail has been impacted much, much more than retail in other countries. And that's for cultural reasons as much as anything else. You can't imagine the, the retail situation in France being affected. Having said that, you know, even a few months ago, there was a very famous French bookseller that closed and that caused consternation amongst the French book trade because, again, this isn't something that came about with COVID. These are long-term changes, which, as far as we can tell, are inexorable. There is something very compelling about the digital space. There's something very compelling economically where companies exist in a not quite real life world where they can evade taxes and they can cut corners and they can do all kinds of things. So, you know, economically, all countries will at some point be affected by the internet in this way. And it's been really interesting for bookshop.org to receive inquiries from lots of different countries that they would like the model set up in their country. So, you know, we're, we're hopefully, book, and I think bookshop.org is a model for other industries as well. And, and so it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves um, in the future because you put ethics and people at the heart. I don't know what's at the beating heart of Amazon, but, it, but it's not human. <laughs> and now for the bookseller's quiz. How many books are on bookshop.org? We carry the entire Gardener's catalogue, so I believe that's about 15 million. What was the last or one of the most sold books on bookshop.org? Well, I kind of gave the game away a bit, but it's Clara and Son because we did an event with Ishguru in March and we made sure that the bookshops benefited from, from selling the book and coming and seeing the event. We had over a thousand people attend the event. What would you do if you couldn't be in the book selling business? Uh, I'd be doing something in the space industry if I could. You could be an astronaut. No, I'm really bad with heights. I'd be selling on the ground. Um, what book are you reading at the moment? Like a lot of people in the book world, I have about three books on the go. So I have a book called The Bitcoin Manifesto, I think it's called, which is all about how Bitcoin works, because I feel I should brush up on that. Um, I'm also reading a book that hasn't been published yet. I've got a proof of called Devil You Know. It's probably in the similar vein to Heretics, in the sense that it's someone who spent a lot of time with very violent criminals and has come up with some surprising insights into how the human, how the human brain works. So um, that, that is right up my street. So that's the second book I'm reading. Um, there's another book called about cybercrime, which I'm reading as well. So yeah, it's a bit of a mishmash. Strangely, I'm, I haven't got a fiction book on the go at the moment. So I normally try and have at least one fiction book on the go. What is your favorite bookshop? This was a real tough one. I probably... I'm going to say mostly books. It's really difficult for someone to take over a bookshop where you're always going to be judged against the previous owner. And Sarah Dennis, who took over mostly books, has just done an incredible. She's brought an entirely new way of doing book selling. She's gone off from different directions. She's now taken over another bookshop and she's just doing incredibly well. In fact, probably if I'm going to be absolutely honest, certainly financially, she's doing much better than I ever did. It's interesting that you say... Um... You know, it's different in different countries because I remember having studied in Romania, like I did my bachelor's studies in Romania, um, my BA studies in Romania, and um, I remember uh, I was studying in English there. It was very hard to find books in English. It was very hard to find philosophy and anything like that. And I had to order on Amazon and I had to order on Amazon.com because there's no Romanian Amazon. And apart from waiting for three or four weeks 
for the books to arrive and going to a post office at the like in the outskirts of the city to collect them because they would only arrive there from the US and paying enormous fees for the delivery it was just you know then my even my professor would ask for the books he was like oh can you can you lend me that book because you know there's nowhere to you know, it's so hard to get it and we still don't have in Romania there's still no um, easy access to Amazon but there have been some local alternatives to Amazon basically Romanian Amazon um that doesn't have better prices and that doesn't treat people more like fairly and you know it it comes with its own uh, shadiness so it, i don't think i think when we talk about amazon we tend to forget that it's just um you know any monopoly kind of gets to certain practices that are hard to contest at some point it's not just amazon that is intrinsically evil no and i think you have to i mean and just to while we're yeah confessing our amazon okay so i i told you that i was building websites right in the early days so before amazon launched in the uk i was buying books from amazon in the us that's my shameful amazon secret because i was i needed like you i needed specialist books you know which a bookshop probably could have got for me but where i lived at the time where i was studying um i for whatever reason I, that didn't fit and i i was very embedded in technology as far as i was concerned amazon was part of a revolution which i was you know i was i was all for and amazon grew to be so big because it was addressing a lot of the problems that existed around at the time you're absolutely right there's nothing what amazon is now doing is a function of its size and its power and power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely it's so big now that when amazon makes a mistake many many people suffer when amazon chooses to do something maybe for sometimes the best of reasons although increasingly it's for optimizing reasons they're doing so which can seriously harm people and i think it's just i, I don't i think it's i think you're right in to say that it's not that they're inherently evil but problem is that there's nobody i read an article recently which said nobody in amazon really knows how amazon works just as no one in google really knows how google works it's a monstrous machine with many many moving parts and people might think they know how certain parts of it work but altogether and and increasingly there's machine learning um even proper ai and not just algorithms so you know these are big philosophical questions and we're going to have to answer them for our species how much do we want the machines running things versus how much do we want people running them because people have flaws but when people do things if i you know if i'm a bookseller in a bookshop and i recommend you a book that you don't like okay no big deal there's a trust mm. eroded there but if an amazon algorithm recommends a thousand people to recommend a book which is you know it's, it's more stuff out there it's more things that people didn't want it's it's a machine if you like and i think it's i think it's a big philosophy and i'm not saying that bookshop.org has all the answers but i do passionately feel that bookshop.org in terms of its model is one potential way that we navigate that we square this paradox that technology is advancing whether we like or not and yet we're going to have to reinvent ourselves as humans in relation to technology and that's going to be that's the big project that and climate change is the big project of the 21st century and we'll find out at the end of the 21st century whether we got it right. Yeah, we definitely have to reinvent some business models. That's that's for sure. But I guess um, to to ask maybe more 
provocative question. Some of the flaws, some of the flaws that Amazon has come from its size, right? It's sheer size. When you operate at that scale, as you said, no one in Amazon knows even how it works anymore, right? Um, what if bookshop.org will hopefully be incredibly successful and take over every book sold online or, you know, the majority of books sold online? Um, how how will it avoid becoming another Amazon? And I know that you have some you know, measurements in place already to make sure it doesn't get there and Amazon cannot buy Bookshop.org, as you said, which is already a great start. But do you think on a more philosophical level that these problems can be avoided if and when you will grow to be a huge company? I think that obviously I'm going to say yes, all right? But let me try and justify it. So the first thing to say is that we have booksellers sort of embedded into the company. Um, the, the originally, Bookshop.org, one of the main backers is the American Booksellers Association, which is the trade association of booksellers. We have uh, booksellers on our board. And we, as I say, we have a mission against which we are audited or we will be audited against. So all of that, I hope, I mean, it, it's really interesting this Thursday. I mean, we're taught, I know we shouldn't ever use dates dependent but okay so there's an event which we were involved in with a guy called Richard Walker who's the Iceland the MD of Iceland Foods and he describes himself as a, a corporate activist and he's written the Green Grocer and that's about how companies can play a role in solving climate change and his exactly to his point companies are not evil but they can be structured and set up in a way that reduces the risk risk when we come down to it, reduces the risk that they will do harm and that's exactly the way that bookshop.org has been set up. And so, you know, I think there's a mission aspect of it that will, um, that, that will, I hope, I, I, and I really do believe, means that we won't. I mean, it's a high, as my boss, Nicole, is often uh, fond of saying, this is a high class problem to solve if you suddenly find yourself responsible for, for, for selling all the books online. That will never happen. And in fact, we, we would not want that to happen. What we want to be able to do is to sit between bookshops and and the big online retailers to to meet those customers. It's really interesting that when we so we do something called a town hall once a month, quite often driven by online requirements, but it's also driven by the fact that book booksellers are busy and they're distributed and they live miles away from from you know maybe the places that you might have gatherings. And so we do a town hall and we we'll cover one or two things. And we did a town hall for the British booksellers before we launched and we brought some US booksellers in and there's a legendary bookshop in uh, Philadelphia called Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. You definitely, definitely should have them on the podcast, no, no question. So Uncle Bobby's is a black owned bookseller um, and the bookseller from Uncle Bobby's was saying, you know, I absolutely want my customers to come to my shop and on most days of the week they will come to my shop, but just sometimes they, they just want a book. And Amazon has made it really, really easy to just be embedded and click and things like that. So what bookshop.org allows his bookshop to do is to be where the customer is. And in that regards, I think the best way to look at bookshop.org is uh, if you have independent booksellers over here who are very much human and you have Amazon over here, which is the sort of Godzilla type of, of robot, bookshop.org is a kind of, it's it's augmented technology. It's, a, it's bookshops as, as cyborgs, if you like. And I know that there's some bookshops who would be very, very upset by that description. But there's a book written 40 years ago. It's one of my 
absolutely founding text in terms of how I navigate all this stuff. And it's, it was by John Naisbitt. John Naisbitt was a futurist and he wrote a book called Megatrends, but he also wrote a book called High Tech, High Touch. This is before the web, 1983, I think it was published. What he saw was as computers get more powerful and as we become more connected, the value of what we do is the, that one-to-one -one human interaction amplified by technology. So this is why it was so important to bake ethics and bake individual people into the system and make sure that they have, that there's always a human in the loop. This is some, something that Hannah Fry talks about, the, the, the broadcaster and, and, and scientist, Hannah Fry, about having a human in the loop. Because as long as there's a human in the loop, there's a fire break from that kind of constant circle of technology. You need the technology, that, that's out of the box, but you need the bookseller to bring it all the way back to books. And that technology really amplifies and extends what the, what the value of being a bookseller. And you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have bookshop.org without the individual booksellers. And what I believe is that bookshop.org helps us to keep those booksellers because it gives them a really important tool to amplify their skills and their value. Um, and that's how I think we will stay safe. And I can, I can, that's about as much reassurance as I think I can, I can offer. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's a good reassurance. I, uh, I have some book related questions. Um, hey. I saw, uh, you guys posted, um, recently a list about genre defying books. And, um, I thought based on your background, uh, this could be a very good question for you. So can you tell us what are some of your favorite, uh, genre defying books? Okay. Genre is a really, really contested area. It's a really controversial area. It's probably more controversial than in some ways than, than sort of online book selling because genre defining. So we have genres, we have to have some kind of categorizations and there are people who, who want to read, you know, crime thrillers or they want to read, you know, contemporary fiction, but it's amazing how many genres now were genre defined come from genre defined books. So yeah. for example, go back. Go back 20 years ago, there was no such thing as dystopian fiction. I mean, there was. I used to love reading dystopian fiction when I was a kid, but it wasn't called dystopian fiction. And then The Hunger Games came along, and then suddenly dystopian fiction was a, a thing. So, so, so genre plays a dance between these different things. But there are, I know exactly what you mean by genre defying. So I think, just to be clear here, you, you mean books that, that don't fit neatly into a particular genre. At least now in 2021. At least now, exactly. So... So I think, I think there are those books which, let me give you a couple real quick. I mean, um, so there is an author called Francis Spufford. Um, Francis Spufford, he's just actually just finished his latest book, Light Perpetual. Every single book that Francis Spufford writes is different. And he wrote a book called Red Plenty. And it's the story of the Soviet Union told in a series of fictional vignettes based on historical facts from when Stalin dies to when Khrushchev is overthrown that and it is amazing it is amazing it's amazing if you want if you want to understand because not many people realize that at one point in time the, the Soviet Union was growing something like three times faster in terms of GDP than, than America and this book just kind of goes behind the scenes and shows you why a centrally planned economy <laughs> won't work I mean it tells individual stories it's amazing it's absolutely amazing okay so so that's a genre defining book is it history is it fiction is it 
Um, is it an economics textbook? Uh, it's all the things. So that's just amazing. I mean, everything that Francis Bufford writes, I, I think is brilliant, but it's all very different. He's a nightmare to categorize into the genre. Um, there's a book called Heretics by Will Storr. And if there's one book which has changed the way I view the world on a daily basis, it's this book. He spent time with people who we would consider to be heretical. So that could be people who don't uh, believe that the, you know, that the earth was only created 5,000 years ago, or people who believe that the Holocaust never happened, or people who are schizophrenic and, and, and talk to voices in their heads and see people in their rooms. And what he does, is he spends time with people who meditate to such an extent that they have out-of-body experiences. And by talking to all these people, he gets to theory of the mind which shows you that we all of us, first of all, all of us have our own unique views of reality. And secondly, there are some people out there whose views of reality are so different that, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's quite tough to read in places, but it's also, and, and the final story in the book is about the Aboriginal uh, children in Aboriginal Australia who now, Aboriginal culture is, is multifaceted and it's amazing and people you know, love the song lines and the images. It's encoding of information, survival information, to allow children to survive in the most harshest environment in the world. And that something so beautiful and, and culturally important can spring from essentially a survival mechanism is profound and it tells you everything you need to know about how the brain encodes information. So Heretics by Will Store is that a self-help book is it a psychology book? Is it a book about uh, fake news? Is it a book about conspiracy theorists? I, I don't know, but I view the world in a very different way and I think about that a lot. I'm so glad I asked you that. And finally, so finally, children's books. Okay, so children's books, I have to say this because my wife is a children's author, but children's books are criminally underrated as a writing genre in the book trade. They are kind of pigeonholed and genreized and lots of people disrespect them and yet children's writing i would say has some of our best and most brilliant writing i'm going to give you two authors who do picture books okay levi pinfold and sean tan but they are the most incredible literature if you levi pinfold wrote a picture book biography of a um of a musician called django he also wrote a book called the black dog one of the most profoundest books in picture book format of the, what depression is like I could go on for ages. I mean, Winnie the Pooh, for goodness sake. I mean, Winnie the Pooh is both a philosophy book and it's a trivial little book. You read, read to ch stories. It's the most amazing book of language. There are many, many genre-busting books. And I think if you want a genre-busting book, go into a bookshop and bookseller and ask them because genre-busting books, by their very nature, are very difficult to find by algorithms. That's, that's um, yeah, I'm very glad I asked you that question. Um <laughs> I have another uh, book related question. Um, so I saw there was um, there was another list that you guys published recently about um, indie champions list. Yeah. So that means the titles that contribute most to indie bookshops uh, through sales. And um, this list is different from a bestseller list. And I was wondering, how is it different? So the, the best way is to give me an example. Let's imagine that um, I'm, a, I'm a bookshop. I am a big fan of um, Ishiguru and I recommend, I, I have a, a, on my curated list a copy of Clara and the Sun. Someone buys that, they get 30% commission for my bookshop. You, because you have a regular bookshop account, you also love Clara and the Sun and you 
put some money. And you sell two copies of that book. 10% of each of those sales will go in so that the overall contribution to bookshops is, is 20% of the cover of the book. So on the Indie Champions list, this is a bad example because I'm actually using the same, the same book. So let's just start again. Sorry. Clara and the Sun, one copy. Another book that you like, you've sold two copies of, 10%. There's a 20, 30. So on our Indie Champions list, that book that was sold through a, directly through a bookshop.org carries more commission for bookshops. Thus, it appears higher up the Indie Champions list. So the Indie Champions list are those books that have raised the most money in commission for independent bookshops. Now, I'll be absolutely honest with you. There is probably a, a bit of overlap between a, a traditional bestsellers list and our Indie Champions list. That's going to be inevitable. But there are differences and quite profound differences because of our diverse, our slightly more diverse way and, and the fact that we try and curate through lists. Now, when we launched Bookshop.org, we were, all of us were very resistant to bestseller lists because the first thing you do when you create a bestseller list is you create a list that can be gamed. Okay, the publishers are very, very good at reverse engineering bestseller lists and working out how to get on top of them, okay, particularly the big publishers. Why wouldn't they? That's their job. Uh, you know, that's what they do. And the publishers were saying, well, what is selling on Bookshop.org? And people want to know. When I was a bookseller, at the end of the day, what's the first thing I looked? I looked to see what I sold. If, if, if one of my favorite books was on top of the sales list, I was happy as Larry. So people want to know what sells. But if you're going to create something like a bestseller list, which is going to be gamed, at least have it gamed so that bookshops benefit. So that those books on that list represent the books that have contributed most to independent bookshops and by extension are on our mission. So I'm sure there are some people going, oh, yeah, it's just a bestseller list. They're just, you know, but really we've thought, we thought you wouldn't believe the discussions that we had internally because we were so conflicted. And we think this is the, this is the least worst option. The response has been great. And, and so I, th I feel it's a, a really positive um, thing that we've done and, and, and I'm delighted with it. Um, I'd like to ask you, Mark, what do you think the future holds for independent bookshops? And I wonder how optimistic you are. And do you think there's a certain level of rise we're noticing in social consciousness that uh, that will help bookshops survive or or next time someone asks should i open a bookshop should we quote tim waterstone and say not so <laughs> no i think the next time someone asks you to play them this podcast um i am incredibly optimistic it's a wonderful privilege to do what i do i cannot believe that after a lifetime of doing lots of different jobs my two passions of books and technology have aligned like this it's just amazing and one of those privileges is to look across 440 different book selling businesses and 440 different characters of bookshops and already since we launched in november i think there's been eight new bookshops that have opened at least a few have opened by using our platform to get some traction going. So that is incredible for us. And as I say, we so far, touch wood, we've had one bookshop closed, which is, you know, there's a long way to go to recover from COVID. I'm not going to try and sugarcoat that, but we are going to work really hard to try and raise as much money to support bookshops and have them earn money through the book, through, through the, um, through the websites to the best of our abilities. I am very positive and I'm very positive because 
there is a moment, as you quite rightly put, there is a, a, if you like, a number of different things colliding. The first is the, is the rise of the socially conscious consumer. In a way, you've got to be very careful about how you phrase some of this stuff, but in a way, spending money has become a kind of democracy. People have real power about where they spend the money, and it's amazing how little money you have to spend to make a difference. So people are realizing that where they, how they spend the money and where they spend the money. And it's, it's not just a moral thing, it's, it's an environmental thing as well. You know, if you buy one book that you really enjoy against three books that you don't, you know, what's that saying in terms of our consumption? Um, digital products, you know, as we're finding with Bitcoin and NFTs, and there is a cost to digital products environmentally. So we can't pretend that somehow paper books, you know, I've got books in my house which are 100 years old, you know. I mean, how, how marvellous is that in a culture which seems to make things obsolete after three to five years? So, you know, there's all the kind of things going on. There's also, I think, alongside that, it's all mixed in together, but there's a realisation that our places that we live, we're coming to terms with technology. We've kind of covered this, but we're coming to terms with technology in terms of what it means to be human in an age of connectivity and things like that. And part of that, is the places that we live and i think we've had 50 odd years 40 odd years of becoming more and more isolated from our neighbors and what covid did was to say let me show you the end game of when you're sitting in your house isolated and can only all things and so i think that's made people really understand what they want in their communities why they need to reconnect with their people that they live in this physical space whether it be their neighborhood or it be the town center and positively contribute to those kind of things. So I think anybody looking actually to open a bookshop at the moment, as long as you're not competing or you're opening in a place that already has a, a number of bookshops, there's plenty of places in this country that have no bookshops and no bookshops. Well, if you open a bookshop in those communities, there's a great chance that everybody's going to swing behind you and want you to want it to work. But I think the future of bookshops is that they will also, in a sense, become focal points for that change. You know, if you go back hundreds of years to when bookshops first started opening, bookshops were places to sell ideas. They were places to seed ideas and thoughts. And, and one of my favorite books, I mean, again, you could define as a genre busting, I don't know, but is The Ordeal of Change by the philosopher Eric Hoffer. And Eric Hoffer is a philosopher who's very, very different from almost every other philosopher because he came from the very bottom. He's a hobo. He was in California. He was an itinerant worker, he was rounded up into a work camp where many men were rounded up. It's, it's the backstory for mice and men. And he, from there, started observing and writing. And he became a philosopher almost uniquely. And he wrote a book called The Ordeal of Change. And he says that people often think that change happens because of revolutions. But actually, it's the other way around. Revolutions happen because of change. In times of rapid change... People become very scared and the, the, the usual rules of how societies operate break apart and then they come back together. And bookshops have always played that part. Someone once said the next revolution will start in a bookshop. And I think the future of booksellers is this incredible marriage between a dawning realization and a wider appreciation within society about this social conscience and how they spend their money the physical spaces that bookshops represent and how they sort of get ideas around, and then the human-led 
use of technology to amplify the things that bookshops do so well. And if bookshops focus on those three things, I think you can open a bookshop anywhere. I think you'd be successful. And I think you can bring about positive change in the places where you live. And that, I think, is the future of bookselling. Let's uh, definitely hope that. And what I'd add to that is probably, and you, you've mentioned this to, to some extent, bookshops also have to adapt, right? So obviously, if you open a bookshop now, you might have a lot of maybe fresh ideas and things you want to do from events to how to use technology to how to even the, how to design your bookshop. But if you've set up your bookshop maybe 40, 30 years ago, maybe you need to recognize that the world is changing around you and to some extent adapt to that as well. Um, I, think the, I think the old and the new learn from each other. You know, a bookshop that's been around 30 years will have those right. systems and that long-term curation knowledge and the new booksellers have new ideas. And, and I think that also is a way that we can facilitate the interplay between those ideas, between the old and the new, which is what happens in books, you know, backlist <laughs> and new titles. It's all linked. You know, yeah, and I think um, companies like bookshop.org or maybe just bookshop.org for now also have a huge role to play in that. And I'm really glad that we invited you on the podcast to better understand how it all works, to also get to meet some of the people behind it, because I think otherwise, um, same as with so many other companies, we have this idea of this entity that is doing things, but we don't know who's working there, what kind of people they are, that they actually love books. And this is very clear from, from our conversation um, and that they do what they do because they're passionate about it, which is great to see. So I want to ask you a final question um, to, to kind of wrap up this uh, great discussion. And it's about the butterfly effect, something we like to ask some of our uh, bookseller guests as well. So if um, the butterfly effect is something that, that speaks to you, I want to ask you how much do you think a book can change the trajectory of one's life? And do you maybe have a personal example that you can share with us? So it was really interesting. It just happens that on my bookshelf, I have... Um, a book by James Glyke called Chaos. It was written about 25 years ago, I think. And that was the where the butterfly effect was first kind of explored and things like that. It's, but I've, I've read it a number of times. And the butterfly effect does absolutely speak to me. Another one of my passions, if you like, I, I get a lot of people making fun of me about this within the within the bookshop ball team and increasingly within the bookseller community because I, I have... Um, I have a practice bookshop or bookshop.org, which I use for training. And it's called the Bookshop on the Moon because I'm a, I'm a complete space nut. And I see things in terms of, of orbits you know, around the sun. And I think to some extent, human beings can be likened to those little space probes which get sent out. And the way that space probes are sent out into the universe now is, is something called slingshotting. And what they do is they get looped around planets so New Horizons, which is the, the space probe which uh, flew past Pluto, uh, didn't go out to Pluto initially. It was sl slung shot around the inner solar system. It, it, it looped around Venus. It looped around Earth a couple of times. It was like it literally was. You can imagine a slingshot going whoosh, and then off they go. And sometimes we feel that books have an impact like Jupiter or Saturn, these big planets which beat those big slingshot effects. But gravity is something which adds up in little tiny increments and I think books sometimes make little nudges to the trajectories. So you read a book and they just set you off a little bit on course, off course, wrong course, depending on how you look at it. And those trajectories won't play out 
till 10, 20, 30 years time. And I think that's what a great book does. It's a book that you find yourself coming back to again and again and again. And I think I was thinking about this and there are many books that I can say, oh, yeah, this had an impact on me. But I think the first book that I read, which had an, a, a, an impact on me, was The Owl Service by Alan Garner. It's a children's book. And it is really, really unsettling. The ending is ambiguous. It has themes from uh, the Mabinogion, which is a, a series of Welsh mythological tales. And I finished reading that book. And it had such a profound impact on me. I had gotten it out how long how old I was, you know, nine, ten. I mean, we had a little traveling library, which I used to get books out, probably about ten. And it made me feel so unsettled. To this day, if I see the cover of that book, I, I get goosebumps and everything. But it was ambiguous. The ending was ambiguous. It wasn't a neat little story. And I think it first shone a light that somehow life isn't tidy. It's not about a nice series of facts. And it comes down to your own perception of reality and, and interpretation and that has probably that probably knocked me off course very very a young time and I'm still dealing with the different trajectory that it sent me off as I speed out into the universe but there you go that's my that's my that's one of my many theories thank you very much for that answer um yes it's um it's actually very nice that you gave an example that is from such a long time ago uh, and that you remembered it. It's kind of a proof in a way that it, the theory does work, because if you remember that and if you remember exactly the, uh, you know, the untidiness of life, I guess, that you took from it. it um, I wouldn't have, impact. but I wouldn't have consciously taken that in. It's only much, much later looking back. You can stretch an analogy to breaking point. I don't want to do that, but I, I do feel that it's the accumulation of books. Yeah. And that's why, incidentally, you should read a lot and you should read very widely. You never know. You never know the book that's going to just knock you yeah. onto a slightly better trajectory. <laughs> and on that note, with that good advice of read a lot and read widely, what we're going to do is add your book recommendations to our list on uh, Godbook, on, sorry, on, <laughs> on bookshop.org, uh, but the God Books list. And um and we'll, we'll encourage all of our listeners to, to read the books yeah. you recommended. Thank you very much. <laughs> really, I've really enjoyed it. Um, and um, yeah, I, uh, if you need some suggestions from other booksellers to interview, I'm, to I'm, I'm, I have lots. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll sure be coming to you, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our chat today. We'll see you back here in two weeks. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and leave us voice messages at anchor.fm slash cardbooks. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy a good book.